GEMCAST. Today I'll be talking with two people who are experts in the field of medications and medication interactions. The first is David Yearling, who is the head of the Division of Clinical Pharmacology and Toxicology at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center in Toronto, and he has trained and worked as a clinical pharmacologist before training medically and then is board certified in internal medicine and toxicology in addition to his PharmD. David tweets with the handle at David Yearling. I'll also be talking with Brian Hayes, who you may have heard previously on MRAP and also who blogs frequently for Academic Life in EM. He also is a PharmD and tweets frequently with at PharmERTalksGuy. He works in the ED at the University of Maryland and is an amazing educator in the realm of EM and pharmacology. So with that introduction, we are going to start with two cases and I'll talk first with David and then with Brian about potentially problematic interactions and ways to prevent those interactions by picking medications appropriately. As always, you can follow us at GEMPodcast is the Twitter handle, and you can reach us on the web, GEMPodcast.com. Feel free to go leave a comment or suggestion or thought, etc. We're going to start off with a case. First off, we have a 73-year-old woman who presents to the emergency department with cellulitis to the left forearm from a mosquito bite that became infected. This is something we see all the time. Now this patient has a history of MRSA infections in the past and also has hypertension, diabetes, and a prior aortic valve replacement for which she is on Coumadin. She doesn't look septic to you and you feel that she's safe for discharge home with PO antibiotics. But what medications should you put her on? Well, it depends on a lot of different factors, including her history, her renal function, and also her other medications. Bactrim or trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole is a medication that we use frequently in the ER for skin and soft tissue infections and also for urinary tract infections. However, there are several medications, particularly those that older adults may be on, that can result in dangerous or symptomatic interactions. So we're gonna look at a few of those potentially dangerous interactions. For this patient, on reviewing her medication list, you see that she's on lisinopril, which is an ACE inhibitor, as well as gliburide, a sulfonylurea, and on Coumadin, a vitamin K antagonist for her aortic valve replacement. So what are some potential problems with prescribing Bactrim? First of all, we'll look at the ACE inhibitor. Are there any complications with this? Yes, the primary concern there is hyperkalemia. So we know that patients on ACE inhibitors are at risk of hyperkalemia just from those drugs alone, and the reason for that's pretty straightforward. Converting enzyme turns angiotensin 1 into angiotensin 2, and angiotensin 2 among its many functions is to is to stimulate aldosterone secretion. So when you put somebody on an ACE inhibitor, you're to an extent lowering aldosterone levels, and that has the effect of causing a bit of a accumulation of potassium or reduced renal clearance of potassium. So when you add Bactrim, what happens is that the trimethoprim component of Bactrim effectively acts as a potassium-sparing diuretic, the same channel in the distal nephron that amylaride blocks, the potassium-sparing diuretic amylaride, is blocked by trimethoprim. And so what you're really doing is taking a patient who's already at risk of hyperkalemia by virtue of an ACE inhibitor and adding another drug risk factor for hyperkalemia in the form of the trimethoprim. And so we, five or six years ago now, published a study showing that that combination of drugs leads to almost a seven-fold increase in the risk of hospitalization for hyperkalemia in the next two weeks compared to if you'd given the patient, say, amoxicillin. 
which might or might not be appropriate, but the point is that that's a real interaction. And we've recently shown that it also appears to be a risk factor for sudden cardiac death, about a 50% increase in the risk of sudden death in people who are put on Bactrim in addition to an ACE inhibitor. And we speculate that at least some of those deaths are actually hyperkalemic in nature. And you say a 50% relative increase. Do you know what the actual increase is? The study was published in BMJ, I think, 2014, and the design was a case control study, so you can't really get at the actual incidence or absolute risk. It's going to be relatively small, but the point is it's it's, it's a terminal event, and so even if it's rare, it's the kind of thing you want to generally avoid. Absolutely. We try to avoid death at all costs. So hyperkalemia, when we're adding the particularly the trimethoprim component, is the same true of interactions with ARBs, angiotensin receptor blockers? Yes. So that study actually looked at ACEs and ARBs, but whether you're on an ACE or on an ARB from an interaction perspective in terms of hyperkalemia, you're pretty much in the same boat. And so I think it's important for docs who are prescribing Bactrim to patients on either ACEs or ARBs to be mindful of the potential for hyperkalemia. Now let's say this patient were not on an ACE or an ARB, but reviewing her history, we see that she is on gliburide, a sulfonylurea. Are there any potential interactions that Bactrim could have with the gliburide? You could literally kill somebody this way. So the answer is yes. Uh, And it doesn't need to be gliburide. It could be glycoside. It could be glimepiride. All of the sulfonylureas are metabolized by the CYP enzyme system in the liver. And the actual specifics aren't that important. What people need to realize is that both sulfamethoxazole and trimethoprim, the two components of Bactrim, turn off the enzymes that metabolize glyburide and glycoside and so on. And so the result of that is, you know, unless you've reduced the dose of the sulfonylurea, for most patients, the level of the sulfonylurea will go up in the blood. Now, we don't quantify sulfonylurea levels, but remember what they do with these drugs is they cause the pancreas to release insulin. And so what we see in a patient who's on a sulfonylurea, when you add trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole, is an increase in insulin levels and a reduction in glucose levels. And so hypoglycemia is a perfectly foreseeable and really perfectly avoidable consequence of using Bactrim in these patients. Interesting. So hyperkalemia with the first and then hypoglycemia. In fact, I should mention our first drug interaction paper, I think it's 2003 in in JAMA, we actually looked at several interactions, but one of them was glibride and and Bactrim. And what we found was, I'll just do the the translation of this, if you have an older person in front of you and they're on glibride and you elect to give them Bactrim, over, say, amoxicillin for a UTI or what have you, that person's relative risk of being hospitalized for hypoglycemia in the next week is about six-fold higher. And this makes no mention, by the way, of people who have hypoglycemia that's managed at home or people who have you know, seizures as the presentation of hypoglycemia or people who had a motor vehicle accident as a result. So it doesn't really capture all of the potential outcomes, but it clearly, you know, this is an interaction that doesn't just happen in books and it's not just talked about by pointy-headed pharmacologists. It's actually a real thing and it's no exaggeration to say that you can kill somebody with a prescription for Bactrim if you're not careful. Wow. So the first interaction hyperkalemia. The second interaction with the sulfonylurea is hypoglycemia. And now what about the Coumadin that she's on? Problem there too. Coumadin is a funny drug. It's actually a racemic mixture of you know 50% R, 50% S, and it's the S enantiomer of the Coumadin that's done, doing most of the work. That compound is also metabolized by the liver by the same enzyme system that metabolizes sulfonylurea. So another way of saying that is that if you've got a patient who's on, you know, five of Coumadin a day and you add 
back into the regimen. If you haven't implemented a commensurate reduction in the dose of the Coumadin, what you'll see is over the course of the next four, five, six days, you'll see the INR rise because you're giving the same dose of drug despite having turned off with the Bactrim the liver's ability to metabolize it. So they'll develop a coagulopathy. So this patient alone was on three different drugs that could potentially have life-threatening complications with prescribing Bactrim. We'll talk about alternate medications also with Brian Hayes, but let's say Bactrim really is the best medication choice for a patient for some reason. Are there ways to get around some of these complications? I mean, what I would say is if the patient had to have Bactrim, you could just cut their glycerin in half. You could empirically cut their warfarin down a little bit and keep a close eye on their INR and tell them to watch their glucose a little bit. And, you know, not everybody who goes on Bactrim with an ACE inhibitor or ARB gets hyperkalemic. You could just watch their potassium more closely in the next few days, in a few weeks. So I guess what I, it's important to make sure that people aren't left with the impression they can't use Bactrim. I mean, they can. They just have to be careful in what they do. So, Brian, we've talked with David about some of the complications of prescribing Bactrim with other medications like Coumadin, Gliburide, and ACE inhibitors. What are some alternatives that we can use? When we're thinking about skin and soft tissue infections and, and antibiotics with uh, warfarin, pretty much all of the antibiotics have at least a small interaction and would require closer monitoring of the INR for the duration of the antibiotic therapy. For skin and soft tissue infection from a mosquito bite, like this case, the most likely causative species should be strep. So a penicillin or a cephalosporin would be a great choice with the minimal drug interactions as much as you can get. Uh, clindamycin is another option for strep. It's not as good, at least definitely in Baltimore, but I don't know about other regions, but it's not as good for MRSA in other regions, but it's still very good for strep coverage. And it doesn't interact as bad with warfarin, but it does have as we know, the higher incidence of antibiotic-associated diarrhea and C. diff, so that could be problematic. If we're suspecting MRSA, which I don't think we would be from this case necessarily, but just in case we needed to cover for it, doxycycline is also an alternative to Bactrim that has less interactions than warfarin. And one thing I think that's pretty interesting, which is which may actually shape the way we treat skin and soft tissue infections in the outpatient setting going forward, is that linazolid used to be really expensive. It was sometimes like, I think it was like a hundred or more dollars for a course of therapy or sometimes even more than that. And it's become generic now in the U.S. And so I think that in the coming months, the price is going to drop significantly as different manufacturers sort of pick it up and start to make it. And that would be another alternative when it covers both strep and staph species, which is fantastic. There are other interactions to think about. So, you know, it's serotonin drugs and things. So obviously if you're thinking about linazolid, you should still perform a comprehensive review of the medication list, but at least it could be another option for us. Yeah, linazolid is one of those funny ones you don't think about potentially causing serotonin syndrome, but in combination with other things like SSRIs or trazodone can certainly do that. And that's such good news that it's coming generic. I remember a patient that I had a long time ago as a student who was essentially admitted to the hospital for PO linazolid because it was so expensive to get as an outpatient and there was just no system in place to get him this PO medication. So I think that's going to be great in terms of treating MRSA in the future. And now you mentioned the Coumadin interactions. Are these medications also safe with gliburide? 
Yeah, the good news is that since a lot of older patients may be on gliburide, that the antibiotics that we talked about previously should also be okay with gliburide. There should be any major interactions with that. So that's good news. And then the ACE inhibitor as well. Anything we should be concerned about there or are those also okay? Uh, those also should be pretty okay. Um, the ACE inhibitors and ARBs uh, shouldn't interact much with the antibiotics, uh, so we should be good there too. And I know with the Bactrim interacting with the gliburide, it doesn't necessarily mean that we can't use it, but maybe that we should have the dose and have the patient recheck their blood sugar more frequently. Yeah, that's true. I think the, the glyburide's a little tricky and just because with the Coumadin or the Warfarin, patients are used to getting their INR checked. So if you mention to them in the next week or two that you're on the antibiotic, we're going to have to set up some more frequent INR monitoring, they're going to be totally okay with that. And hopefully most of them are also measuring their blood sugars, but it might be a little bit more of a change because they're not used to changing their dose of glyburn. It's kind of like this is the dose that it is, and then you take it every day or twice a day and check your blood sugar. So it might be a little bit more of a counseling point for them if it's the glyburide that's the issue. Now, Coumadin is such a scary one because if their INR does get too high and then they have mild trauma or a nosebleed or a head bleed, then it can just continue to bleed. So there are a lot of interactions, as you mentioned, with antibiotics and antifungals. Which ones are the worst? There's data out there, and there was a recent study, semi-recent, in the last couple of years, that I think really helped us at least narrow in on which ones are the worst. And this one was published in the American Journal of Medicine back in 2012. It was called Concurrent Use of Warfarin and Antibiotics and Risk of Bleeding in Older Adults. And basically, they, they conducted this study, and they came up with odds ratios for the risk of interaction or the risk of bleeding. And at the very top, as we would expect, is the azole antifungal, so fluconazole, for example. Second on the list was macrolides, which I think that we talked about already, and we're going to talk about again in the next case. Quinolones are third, and just personally speaking, I've seen too many patients that get started on a, what seems to be a benign short course of ciprofloxacin, and they come into the ED a couple of days later and their INR is nine, or they get sent in from the INR clinic and their INR is 12. So quinolones definitely watch out for. Cotramoxazole, which is the uh, one of the components for Bactrim. And then penicillins and cephalosporins are still on this list because, like I, we mentioned earlier, all the antibiotics will have somewhat of an interaction, but those are definitely the safest um, in terms of the overall classes of antibiotics. So in terms of this patient, maybe prescribing a cephalosporin and just saying have your INR checked more frequently is a good option. That's exactly what I'd recommend. I'd say penicillin maybe, but cephalosporin is probably the safest. And then, yeah, definitely closer monitoring of INR just as they're on their antibiotic course. Okay, I'm going to jump in with a summary. Our first case was a patient who's on an ACE inhibitor, sulfonylurea, and Coumadin, who we are considering prescribing Bactrim for. As David mentioned, for the ACE inhibitor, ACEs decrease the amount of angiotensin II, which decreases your aldosterone level. And if we remember back to nephrology, aldosterone increases sodium reabsorption and increases potassium excretion in the kidneys. So without as much aldosterone, you have higher potassium levels building up. Now, Bactrim acts essentially as a potassium-bearing diuretic decreasing potassium excretion in the urine. And so the combination can result in hyperkalemia with a seven-fold increased risk of hospitalization for hyperkalemia in the first two weeks of treatment and a 50% increase in risk of sudden death. Now, again, the absolute risk is still small, 
but if we can avoid it using other medications, it seems worthwhile. At the very least, we should potentially set up options and possibilities for the patient to have their potassium rechecked. Now, the second interaction was with gliburide. Gliburide and the other sulfonylureas are metabolized by some of the CYP enzymes in the liver, and these are inhibited by Bactrim. So when you treat with Bactrim, it increases the level of the sulfonylurea, which then increases insulin release, decreasing your blood sugar level. So we could potentially mitigate this by decreasing the gliburide dose, cutting it in half, and then also counseling the patients that, hey, you need to check your blood sugar, you may have a drop. With the addition of Bactrim to patients on gliburide, there's a six-fold increase in hospitalization for hypoglycemia within the first week. So this is a real thing. Then third, for Coumadin, this is also metabolized by those liver SIP enzymes. So if you put the patient on Bactrim, your Coumadin level will go up, making your INR go up, and patients could be at risk of bleeding. And then in talking with Brian, essentially all antibiotics have an increased risk of causing bleeding with Coumadin, and I will put the reference that he mentioned in the show notes. The paper says that for the antibiotics that they looked at overall, there was an odds ratio of 2 for increased risk of bleeding for patients on Coumadin. In looking at it, the highest risk agents are actually antifungals with an adjusted odds ratio of 4.6, essentially, of causing hospitalization for bleeding in older patients who are on Coumadin. The other culprits were cotrimoxazole with an odds ratio of 2.7, cephalosporins with an odds ratio of 2.45, penicillins with an odds ratio of 1.92, and then macrolides with an odds ratio of 1.86, and quinolones with an odds ratio of 1.69. And I've certainly seen that patients who were prescribed Leviquin and come back with an INR of 12. As Brian mentioned, there are fortunately a number of alternate medications that we can use for treating skin and soft tissue infections. Most of the time, cellulitis is caused by strep, and we can treat it with a penicillin or a cephalosporin. Those will have a little bit less interaction with Coumadin. And then other alternatives, if we think it's MRSA, would be linazolid, clindamycin, or doxycycline. All of those medications are also safe with the ACE inhibitor and the sulfonylurea. So I certainly learned a lot from talking with David and Brian, and I love how David brought in the basic science and integrated it into our clinical reasoning because it's really helpful to understand why things happen. I find that helps me remember the interactions and remember what not to use rather than just trying to memorize long lists of do's and don'ts. And hopefully those practical tips from David and Brian will be something that you can use on your very next shift. Let's move on to case two. This is a 68-year-old male with a history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and atrial fibrillation who presents with a cough, a low-grade temp, and a chest x-ray that shows an atypical pneumonia. He doesn't have any risk factors for healthcare-associated pneumonia, so we presume this is community-acquired, and usually we treat these patients with macrolides like azithromycin. Before prescribing the azithromycin, we dutifully check the patient's medication list to see what else he's on. It turns out he's on nifedipine, a calcium channel blocker, and also on stimvastatin for his hyperlipidemia, and he's on dabigatran, or pradaxa, for his atrial fibrillation. Are there interactions that we should be concerned about with prescribing azithromycin for this patient? Yeah, they're not nearly as significant as if you were going to use clarithromycin. And I'll just make that point quickly. So clarithro, which is used in many parts of the world, it turns off a very important SIP enzyme 
in the liver and the gut, actually. It's called CYP3A4. And if you had given this patient clarithromycin, you would expect that their nifedipine levels would go through the roof and their simvastatin levels would probably go up 15, 16-fold. It's quite a striking rise in simvastatin in particular. And so you wouldn't be surprised if the patient became hypotensive or developed rhabdo as a result of that interaction. With azithro, azithro, as interactions go, is a whole lot safer than the the macrolides that preceded it. It doesn't really tinker with the liver enzymes like uh, like CYP3A4, but it's not devoid of interactions, and there are two ways in which azithro can cause trouble. The first is through QT prolongation, which I think has been grossly oversold over the last couple of years. I mean, it can happen, but it's not very common. The other more important one is it inhibits a transporter called PGP, peak like a protein, or PGP for short. And, and here's why that's important with the dabigatran in particular. So dabigatran, and more correctly, dabigatran atexalate, the prodrug that's packaged as Prodaxa, about 6, 6.5% of it, of an oral dose, is absorbed. And part of the reason the absorption is so low is because in the small intestine, there's an active pump called PGP. And what it's doing in the enterocyte is it's actually opposing the gastrointestinal absorption of dabigatran. It's effectively cranking the drug from the enterocyte back into the lumen. And any drug that turns off that pump will allow more of the dabigatran to be absorbed. Verapamil does that. Um, amiodarone does that. There are lots of drugs that do it. And I mentioned those two because they're very commonly prescribed with dabigatran. But azithro does it too. It's not as potent an inhibitor of PGP as, say, clarithromycin or erythromycin are. But the concern that I would have here is that by adding azithromycin, you know, put the patient on five days of azithro and they're on dabigatran, that they may increase their absorption of dabigatran and that could be clinically significant. I wouldn't be worried about the nifedipine or about the Simba because, again, this doesn't really turn off 3A4 and it shouldn't mess with their metabolism. So the things to worry about here you mentioned are the absorption and then also the QT prolongation. Are there any other common medications that we should think about before prescribing macrolides to a patient? Well, I think it's important, first of all, to make the point that macrolides aren't all the same. So I, I think you want to be especially vigilant if you, for some reason, you're using azithro or erythro because they have a much more worrisome interaction profiles than azithromycin does. But with azithro, I guess I'd be worried about you know drugs that cause QT prolongation. So um, you know methadone, for example, or some of the antipsychotic drugs. And there's a long list of drugs that can cause QT prolongation in some people. And I suspect you know there are going to be other factors, of course. You know uh, electrolyte abnormalities, latent genetic tendencies to have QT prolongation. And in fact, I think a lot of this buzz you know three or four years ago about azithromycin and sudden death. It sort of alluded to the possibility that these deaths were arrhythmic in nature from QT prolongation and torsad. I think, it's, again, that's just grossly oversold. I think for most patients, azithro is really quite safe. I would use caution, though, if I had a patient who was on, let's say you had somebody who's on 200 milligrams of methadone and the QT is 500 milliseconds long, and I'd be wary, frankly, of adding azithro to that patient's regimen, again, because you know, torsad can kill people. So I think in that instance, you might want to look for another antibiotic, to be very honest. I mean, I don't, I don't think everyone would share that opinion. I think some people would continue to use azithro in those patients, but if you have an alternate agent that doesn't mess with repolarization, I think it might be prudent. I think I'm mostly trying to make people not worry too much about azithro because I think it's generally exaggerated. It's cardiac toxicity. If I remember, the paper said it was something like 1 in 20,000 prescriptions would cause a death. 
you probably know about a year later that they published a follow-up study from a group in Denmark that effectively showed the opposite. I mean, when people die suddenly on azithro, on your second or third or fourth day of azithro when you die suddenly, it might be because you happen to be older and you've got COPD and cardiac disease and people who have those conditions sometimes die suddenly. The ability of, of azithro to cause QT prolongation is really oversold. I think it's, it's worth respecting because the consequences of the interaction, if it happens, are so tremendous. But, you know, I, I normally don't get too worried about it unless the patient's already got a QT that's long. So our second case was a patient with atypical pneumonia who is on a calcium channel blocker, a statin, and pradaxa, and we are considering prescribing a macrolide like azithromycin for an atypical pneumonia. Brian, what are some considerations or alternatives in this case? Yeah, the considerations of that, um, everyone loves azithromycin. Um, we use it for everything. I think it's one of the lead-selling antivirals in the U.S. <laughs> we use it for so many viral infections, so it's, it's so common. And it's a great drug for a lot of things. But in this particular case, it's going to have some interaction problems with both the simvastatin and the dibigatran, so it could increase the patient's risk for bleeding. So there are a couple of alternatives that the, that the patient could be prescribed. And each of these comes with their own side effect profile, so you have to kind of weigh that with the interaction issue. So the two top choices I would say, if you're okay with it and your patient is the levofloxacin and moxifloxacin. So you could just flip over to a fluoroquinolone. And those also have very good community-acquired pneumonia coverage. And those shouldn't have any interaction with the dibigatran, nifedipine, or the simvastatin. So those are one kind of choice you could go with a fluoroquinolone. If you think that there's too much of a risk of side effects for your older adult patient, doxycycline is actually another alternative which covers cap bugs pretty well. And it doesn't have any of the interaction issues with these three drugs that the azithromycin would have. So doxycycline or a fluoroquinolone. And it's interesting that doxycycline kind of shows up on both these lists for the pneumonia and the skin and soft tissue infections as a good alternative in terms of medication interactions. Yeah, that's a great point. I think we sometimes forget about doxycycline because it's one of those drugs that we learned. It's like, oh, if you have some sort of weird bug, doxy is your drug to go to. But it actually does have pretty decent coverage against some of the more common bugs, including MRSA and then your community-acquired pneumonia strep species. It's not as good against the skin strep species, but um, it will cover your strep pneumonia. We actually use doxy a lot here in the southeast during the summer for anyone who comes in with a fever and headache of unclear etiology and we're worried about Rocky Mountain spotted fever, we, we throw some doxy at them just in case. Yep, good for that too. <laughs> but doxy actually, it seems like a couple years ago, the price just skyrocketed. Was that a change in manufacture or a decrease in supply or any insight into that? It was sort of both. And so a couple of the manufacturers, and this is, this is really a problem because I, I feel like doxy is one of those drugs where you can you could even essentially give it away to patients that needed it. And now you can't do that anymore. Um, and it's also affecting not only what we're talking about today, but also on a larger scale, doxycycline is one of the first line therapies for a lot of the biologic um, warfare agents and things. And so if you're stocking ciprofloxacin and doxy in your hospitals for emergency preparedness, now you have this problem where doxy is not as available and it's, it's very much inexpensive. So definitely a problem. So a couple of years ago, what it seems like is that there were a couple of manufacturers that sort of dropped making it 
um, maybe because of profit or, or whatever. Um, and then one of the, the manufacturers that continued to make it ended up getting it sort of branded. It's kind of like the same thing that happened with colchicine, where it was available for years as the super cheap drug. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, let's go through the FDA process, get it approved. And now we can charge an arm and a limb for it. And that's exactly what has happened. So, yeah, Doxy is not like it used to be, unfortunately, for a lot of patients. It's it can be pretty pricey. Yeah, that's one that I've been receiving calls from pharmacies where the patient goes to pick it up and then they can't afford it. So the pharmacy calls me to say, hey, what else can we give them? And unfortunately for a lot of things like Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, there really is nothing else great that can work for it. Yeah, it's a tough situation for sure. I'm going to jump in with our final summary. And I apologize for some of the beeps that were happening in Brian's segment. Uh, Technology is awesome when it works and not so awesome when it doesn't. But for this patient, I learned several things. First of all, from David, we learned that not all macrolides are the same when it comes to interactions. So particularly if you're in a place that uses clarithromycin more, that turns off one of the CYP3A4 enzymes, which is responsible for metabolizing nifedipine and simvastatin. So you may have increased concentrations of those drugs in the serum if you treat with clarithromycin. Now, azithromycin in general is safer, but it does inhibit this pump, PGP. I think it's just amazing what the body does with drugs. I mean, dabigatran is essentially a toxin, although in patients who need it, obviously the benefit outweighs the risk. But the body is trying to pump out this dabigatran using the PGP pump, and that is inhibited by azithromycin. So your levels of dabigatran may start to go up with treatment. And David talked about this issue of azithromycin causing QT prolongation. You know, most of the time on GEMCAST, we're warning you about potential dangerous interactions, but maybe here's one that we don't need to worry about as much, QT prolongation. So think about it if a patient is on drugs like methadone or other things that cause significant prolonged QT, or if they have a congenital prolonged QT, but for most patients, it's probably just fine. Brian talked about some alternatives, such as fluoroquinolones, levaquin, levofloxacin, or moxifloxacin for a community-acquired pneumonia, and then also doxycycline. It's a great alternative for pneumonia and for skin and soft tissue infections. Well, thanks so much for those tips and pearls that we will keep in mind for patients with skin and soft tissue and pneumonia infections in the ED. It is certainly very complicated and something that I am continually learning new things about from experts like you and David Yerlink. So thanks again for being on the podcast. Sure. Thanks for having me. This was great. Hopefully we'll get to do it again soon.